invite you to take your Bibles and go over to Luke chapter 2, verses 35, or 25 rather, to 35. Under the title here of what Simeon saw, lessons from a satisfied old man. Let's um, center our minds and our hearts around this text. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. To know, O Lord, that you were appointed for the fall and rising of many is not only a statement that we read in Scripture, but we have seen that to be true in our own lives. For when we came to you, we had to fall. We had to be humbled under the conviction of the Spirit. And then literally be raised to walk in newness of life. By the beautiful and transforming work that only you can do by the Spirit of the living God. So Lord Jesus, thank you that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that when... Simeon held you in a form of a baby, that what he held in his hands was the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And thank you, Jesus, that you grew and walked on the face of the earth. You showed us how to live and and you died so that we might be reconciled to our Father God. Lord, we pray today that you'd help us to understand what it is that Simeon saw when he held you. What it was that flowed from his heart that is recorded here for our benefit. So that, Lord, we could not miss this important season filled with so much activity, so much family time, so much celebration, and yet so much dissatisfaction. Thank you for the satisfaction that comes in the gospel. So Lord, make it clear today, this text and your message to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what would prompt you to say something like this? Okay. 
Now I am ready to die. (laughs) What would be so satisfying, so overflowing in its goodness, so worthy of your affection that you would actually be able to say, okay, I now am ready to die. Because that's what Simeon says. When he holds the Christ child and he sees the fulfillment of all of God's promises to him and to Israel. Luke records these words because he's writing to a man named Theophilus. He's he's writing an account of the life of Jesus, and eventually he'll write a second book called the book of Acts, which is the work of Jesus through the church. And he's writing to this ruler in order to show him that Jesus really was the Son of Man. He really was the Son of God. He was the fulfillment of of all of the Old Testament promises. He was God in the flesh. And the point that, that Luke is making here is not just to tell us about a little story that, that captures the narrative of what's going on in Jesus' life. No, this narrative has a very specific purpose. And if you look in the passage, it's not only related to Simeon, but if you were to go on, you'd also see another person emerges. Her name is Anna. And both of them are old. They're old people. They've been waiting for years. And both of them, when they experience and see the Christ child, say something that's incredibly personal. Simeon says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And Anna, in verse 38, says that she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption of Israel. So the reason that Luke has these two old people in this passage is to show... Theophilus, that there were people in Israel who had been waiting for years for the coming Messiah, and he takes Theophilus and he says to him, all those people who were waiting for the coming Messiah, they knew that Jesus was the one. His point is to help this man know that the Christ child is the one whom God-fearing, law-keeping, faith-filled people were looking for. Jesus is the one, Theophilus. You see, the reason we have this narrative in here is not just because of Christmas time. In, in fact, we're, we're taking just one passage and we're using it because of the holiday season, but this passage is here to lay the foundation of who Jesus is and for that matter, to, to lay the foundation of what the gospel is. To help Theophilus know why putting his faith in Christ was worthy of his affection. And and worthy of his deciding. And and what he's telling us here about Simeon is that he is a satisfied old man. If you could have been there in the Temple Mount as he encountered Mary and Joseph and the baby and as he took the child and, and held him, you would have seen the look of a man who was absolutely satisfied and for that matter ready to die. Because his eyes had seen the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And that begs a very important question. And it's this. So what did Simeon see? What was it that when he looked at the Christ child, what was going through his mind and heart? What did he see when he looked at the face of Jesus? This morning we're going to, to look at Jesus... And the message of the Bible and the gospel through the lens of Simeon. 
to see what this old man saw and why he was so satisfied such that he could say, okay, now I'm ready to die. I believe that Luke records this account in order to show Theophilus that there is implicit in the person of this little baby the message of the gospel. A broad, beautiful, costly, and satisfying gospel. Some of you may not be familiar with what the word gospel means. Let me just explain it to you very quickly. Gospel means good news. It means that God has declared to sinful people who are separated from Him that there is good news. Good news about what? Good news that a righteous, holy God and a sinful man or woman can be brought together and that your sins, no matter how bad they are, no matter how diabolical you've been or how far you've wandered, you can come back to God today. That's good news. Because no matter what you've done or what sin you've committed, no matter how bad you've done things in your life that would be horribly embarrassing if anyone knew, by the way, God knows, no matter all of what you've done, all of that can be wiped clean by the finished work of one person named Christ. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And the long and short of what I'm going to tell you today is this. That's what we celebrate during this season. It's not about family time. It's not about presents. Not about finding the, the right gift. It's, it's not about trying to stay in budget or finding good sales. It's not about finding good parking spots without sinning. It's not about any of that. What it's about, it's about the gospel. It's about good news. And what Simeon saw when he looked at Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the promises that God had given to the people of Israel. And now they converged. And what Christmas is... It's a call to remember that Jesus is not only the reason for the season. Listen, He's the only reason for living. And in Simeon's case, He's the only one that's even worth dying for. To be a follower of Jesus means that we've declared that nothing is more important, nothing is more lovely, nothing is more attractive than Christ. Nothing. Everything else is secondary. We are people who have one affection, one king, one lord, one master, one desire, and that is Jesus. So this morning I want to just put Simeon's lenses on and, and ask us, what did he see? And what is this text trying to say to us? And what is it that we need to, to grab a hold of, and especially in the midst of a, of a season that you can just get so wrapped up in all the good things that can just become so bad? The first thing in verse 25 is the treasure of a godly life. I want to suggest to you that Simeon's given to us here as a, as a model of a man who had a godly life and he had a godly life that's worth treasuring. And, and your godly life, your walking in righteousness is, is worth counting as valuable and important. Verse 25 tells us that um, there was a man in Jerusalem. He's not listed as a ruler or a priest. He's just a normal guy. Just a Joe Bloke Israelite who's got an unbelievable level of righteousness. He's, he's listed here and honored here not because of his position, but rather because of his righteousness. Notice what it says. There's four words that describe him. He's first described as righteous. See that? 
The word righteous means that he was a man full of God-honoring acts. He did what was right. He did the right things. When, when temptations came across his path, he chose to do what was right. When they were hurting people, he chose to help them. He, he was a person who was righteous. And the word particularly has emphasis as it relates to doing things toward other people. So in relationship to other people, Simeon was a righteous man. He did what was right in the sight of God and man. The next word you see is he's described as devout. Devout it means that he was careful about his religious observances. You know, he, he wasn't the kind of guy who was sort of on God's side during a particular time of the year and then not on God's side for the rest of the time of the year. But rather he was a guy who was determined that his heart was going to be in the presence of the Lord all the time. I once heard of a pastor who um, jokingly on uh, Easter morning um, got up and in front of the congregation that was there he said i'd like to wish some of you a merry christmas and people looked at him what merry christmas he said well the reason is is because we won't see any of you until that time again so <laughs> two christmas you get it okay two sunday okay got it so either that or i just offended a bunch of people which i'm sorry if i did although that could be true so simeon was the kind of guy who wanted to be around the temple because his heart wanted to be where God was. He had this longing to, to not just be righteous, but to be in the right places, to, to hear the law of the Lord, to, to be a part of temple sacrifice. And the Bible describes him as a devout man. So his godliness was not only reflected in how he treated other people, but it was also in respect that, that he was a guy who was involved in, in worship. The next word is the word or the phrase, waiting for the consolation of Israel. It says he was religious, or righteous rather, and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation of Israel. What does that mean? It means that the people of Israel were in agony. They, they, were, they were in their promised land, but they were under the rule of Rome. All sorts of unrighteousness was going on. Even Herod, their king, was some hybrid king that had been set up more to control the peace than anything else. And it was like an occupied land. And, and, and the people longed for a better day. A day like during David's time when, when a godly king sat on a throne and, and righteousness seemed to prevail and God's favor was on the people. And, and the prophets talked about a day when, when, when a new king would be set up under the line of David and righteousness would reign and they called him the Messiah. And Simeon longed for that day. He longed when, for the day when the nation of Israel would return to her first love, when peace would again be upon the land and the whole nation's focus would be turned back to God. He longed for that and was waiting for it. And the final thing is it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. And don't just blow over that. Because it means that here is this man who was deeply influenced and controlled by the Spirit of God. There was something about him that when people saw him, they knew he was different. He had this supernatural presence about him. Some sort of manifest presence of the Spirit was evident in Simeon's life. So we see that Simeon has an impressive characteristics here. Righteous, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. From the Old Testament perspective, Simeon was a model of godliness. He kept the Old Testament law. He was involved in religious observance. He was waiting for the Messiah. And the Spirit of God was upon him. That's, that's like spot on, Simeon. 
And verse 26 tells us something. It says that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Interesting, isn't it? God had told him by the Holy Spirit that he wasn't going to die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, first of all, this had to have been just a gracious gift of God. But I also have to believe that part of the reason why God promised Simeon that was in response to Simeon's godliness. It was because God saw this man who was a righteous man and knew that by giving him the gift of being able to see the Lord's Christ in the text, that Simeon wouldn't waste that, that he would have the spiritual eyesight to realize what he's holding. That he would understand that that what's in front of him is, is the consolation of Israel, the Messiah, the Christ child. And Simeon, because of his godliness, would have the eyesight to see that. And I want to suggest to you that godliness and following in righteousness gives you eyesight to see things that other people don't see. It means that, that you see life and process life differently, that, that you, you walk through life with a different lens, that godliness, understanding who Christ is and following in obedience, causes you to have a different view of life than other people. When we were in India, I was looking for a gift for my wife, and I couldn't figure out what to get her. So I started asking the ladies on the art vision team, what should I get my wife? And they said, well, come into this store, I'll show you. And they brought me into the store, and there's like beautiful fabric all over the place. And they're like, what you need to get her is one of these, these scarfs, or they're called shawls, or shoals, or something. She liked it, that's all that matters. So I, I walked into the store, and I'm looking at all this fabric, and all I see is just fabric with little tassels on it. And I'm like, what, what would she do with this? And one of our teammates said, watch this. And she took that thing and she goes, and all of a sudden she said a scarf. And I was like, wow, that's cool. She's like, oh, that's not all. And then she had it around her waist. And she goes, well, here's, it was around her head. And I was like, it's like a magic scarf. That's what it's like. I was just like, amazing. So once I saw what it could do, I, I, now I see the whole thing differently. I see it in, in full color, and I see that one, and that one, and that one, and I'm imagining all these things around my wife's neck, around her waist. I'm like, oh, yes. My eyesight had changed because I could see what it could do. And listen, the gospel fundamentally changes how you see life because you know what it can do. And it's a miracle of the way in which the gospel can change people. And I want to tell you that godliness, understanding the message of the gospel, understanding what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ, changes how you see everything in the world. Go to Second Peter, chapter 3. Let me show you how this works out in New Testament. Understanding the gospel and understanding how things are going to turn out and knowing what the message of the Bible is, should change what you see, that you treasure a godly life, and because of that, it it changes everything that you observe in life and how you process it. We illustrate this from 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, You understand what that means? It means, kids, every Christmas present you get, eventually is going to get thrown away. Merry Christmas, all right? (laughs) That's what it says. 
It's, I didn't say, okay, here's how, here, worse, okay? All those presidents, they're going to burn up in fire. How about that one, okay? Well, what's he saying? He's, everything that exists, eventually it's going to go away. It's going to dissolve. It's, it's going to be burned up. It's going to be no more. And therefore, look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning since all these toys are going to break, since all these things are going to be thrown away, since all these things are going to burn up, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Just quick application of how this works out. So I'm in line at um, Toys R Us at 4.30 in the morning with 100 plus people waiting to get in line, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. And we go in the store, and I see these people with these shopping carts, they're like jockeying for position, running into each other, and they're getting angry. And I always wondered, how is it that people either get killed on this day, or they're like, there's like fights. I understand how it goes now, because people, they're like, they're like zoned in, gotta get this particular gift. They've gotta have it, and so they're, they're, they're pressing in, and, and they're getting angry, because what they want, they can't get. And what this text is saying here, is that because you know all this stuff is going to dissolve, you ought to be different kind of people. That might not be the moment to say, hey, it's all going to burn anyways, back off. Don't say that. <laughs> but realize that we're supposed to have a different orb, a different view of life, a different perspective in how we see things. Look at verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. By the way, that's what's really important. We are waiting for the day when we will be in the new heaven and the new earth where there's no sin, no more confession, no more need to feel guilty. It's all over, it's all new, and Jesus is there and we fellowship with Him forever. That's the essence of what good news is all about. Therefore, verse 14, Beloved, since you are waiting for these things, listen, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and be at peace. So he says, you see life through a different lens. Therefore, since you see life differently and you see everything the way that it really is, therefore your lives ought to be different. Some of you are going to go to um, holiday celebrations. And your least favorite part of Christmas is the fact that you have to get together with family around a table. And it's stressful and hard and difficult and, and it's awkward. And, and I want to give you something that I think might be able to help you. I want to remind you that at the end of the, end of the day, you only live to please one person and it's Jesus. So I want to give you a little phrase that you can say to your husband or wife. Here it is. You ready? It doesn't matter. Okay? Say that with me. It doesn't matter. Say it again. It doesn't matter. Because you're going to need this, some of you, in a few days. Okay? Because you're going to come away from a, 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 a meal that was supposed to be nice and friendly. And it was really awkward. And, and, and you felt just really yucky. And you walk out. You get in the car. You turn the key on. And you're like, well, that was fun. Merry Christmas, right? And, and I want you to look at each other and say this. It doesn't matter. I'm not telling you to be rude. I'm not telling you to be sinful. But what I am telling you is at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. 
to see life through a lens where you are satisfied with the beauty of the gospel, to see life through a lens where you are, are satisfied with who Jesus is. Some of us struggle with the fear of man, what people think of us. And to see life through this lens means that we have to know who Christ is and see godliness as a treasure so that when other people around us may think badly about us, that we don't let them become mini-gods in our life and say, it doesn't matter, I live to please Christ. And to be so satisfied with Jesus that everything else changes. A couple years ago I received a, a telemarketing call and I did something I had never done before. I actually made a telemarketer laugh on the phone. I mean, not just a chuckle, but a hearty laugh. See, they had called and um, said, um, Hi, I wanted to know if you received the car keys we had mailed you in the mail last week. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Car keys, what do you mean? And the person said, Well, look, we, um, we sent you a car key, but we got extras here at the shop. So if you come down... Uh, you'll give your car key, and if you if you put your key in uh, a 2006 Chevy Blazer and it starts, you get the Chevy Blazer for free. And I said, I don't like Chevy Blazers. <laughs> the person said, Oh, really? I said, No. I said, Okay. So she changed strategies. Well, what about fifteen thousand dollars? We we have a drawing for fifteen thousand dollars cash. All you needed to do is come down and put your name in, and we'll draw a name out and give out fifteen thousand. And by this time, my food was getting cold, and I was ready to sit down and have the meal. And I said, "Ma'am, I, I really don't want fifteen thousand dollars either." And she, at that point, she just started laughing. She didn't know what to do. She never found someone so crazy, so out of their mind that they didn't want a Chevy Trailblazer, nor did they want fifteen thousand dollars. Because frankly, I didn't care about a Chevy Blazer or fifteen thousand dollars. Because I really didn't believe they were going to give it to me anyways. What I really wanted was my meal that was getting cold. I, was, I wanted to be satisfied with sitting down with my family. I didn't want all that other stuff. And wouldn't it be awesome if our view of life was like that when it came to the gospel? Yeah, I know you. I know that... I know that what I really don't need... Is for you to think well of me. So therefore I'm going to choose to place my hope in the gospel. Yeah, I know you'd probably leave your husband. But I'm going to believe that God can restore our marriage. Yeah, you know what? If you're going to ask me to do that, I really don't need this job. If you're going to make me do that. Because the treasure of a godly life is more valuable. Yeah, I know that we could buy this or that, but instead we're choosing to give our money away. Or in the case of a martyr, to say, yeah, I know that you're going to kill me, but I still won't recant my belief in Christ. You see, the treasure of a godly life is that you treasure what it means to know Christ and Him crucified above all other things. And Simeon had the spiritual eyesight, because of his godliness, to see and understand who this Christ child was. Second thing, notice here the beauty of the gospel. So what happens is that Mary and Joseph come into the temple, and they're going to come to dedicate Jesus 40 days after his birth. Look at verse 22, and you'll, you'll see what's um, happening here. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, see, after a woman gave birth, she was unclean ceremonially, and she needed to come and offer a sacrifice. It says, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two pigeons. Now that's really important to notice. And here's why. Because Leviticus 12 gave clear instructions that in order for a woman to come out of her uncleanliness period after giving birth to a child, 40 days after that she would come and offer a sacrifice to God. And when she would come, typically they would offer a lamb and a turtle dove. And the lamb was a burnt offering, and the turtle dove was a sin offering. But if you were extremely poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, then there's a little provision in, in Leviticus 12 that allows you to give two turtle doves or two pigeons instead of having to give one lamb. So just think of this for a moment. Here is the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's first in the form of a baby, and the family he's born into is so poor they can't even afford a lamb. Here's the Lamb of God whose parents can't even afford a lamb. That, that, that brings new meaning, doesn't it, to the concept of Christ being humiliated and becoming a human? They come up to the temple to offer this sacrifice. As they, as they come into the temple, the Bible tells us that Simeon saw Jesus, grabs him in his arms, and offers a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving to God. Notice what he says. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. There's a couple things that Simeon says here about the gospel. The first thing is that it brings hope. He says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He's ready to die. Why? Because he had seen the hope of Israel. You know, I've been at the bedside of a lot of people when they're about to die or even as they're dying. And I'm just here to tell you there is a difference between people who know Christ and those who don't as it relates to how they die. And you know why there's a difference? Because it's the difference between hope and hopelessness. And what Simeon says is the gospel brings hope. Because here's a man, he says, I'm at peace, letting your servant depart in peace. The second thing is, is the gospel is rooted in God's faithfulness. He says, this peace is according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So the hope that he has is not just some emotional thought or some sort of anti-intellectual belief, but rather he's saying, I'm going to depart in peace because you've kept your word that Simeon's hope is based upon God's ability to keep his word. And when he holds that baby, he realizes that God had kept his promise, God had been faithful to his word, and Simeon is so satisfied in the gospel because here is God's ability to keep what he says he will do. And when you take up your word and you begin to read it, and you see promises in the Scriptures, you need to realize that those promises given to you are rooted in God's faithfulness and God's ability to keep His Word. One of the reasons that I believe in eternal security or the perseverance of the saints or the fact that once you receive Christ, you are, you are saved all the way through your life is because my salvation is rooted in God's faithfulness, not mine. And thank God it is. The Gospel is filled with hope. It's rooted in God's faithfulness. Third, it's global. Look what he says next. Simeon has an idea that this is going to go much broader than just Israel. He says, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So he knows that God is being gracious to Israel, but he also knows that God's grace is going to overflow the borders of this small nation and it's going to extend to all people 
every nation, tribe, and tongue, as Revelation tells us, and that the gospel is now going to be platformed in Israel, but God is doing something that the whole world will see. And fourth, it is that the gospel is glorious news. He knows that God's target is not just Israel. It's all people, and it will be a light, he says, for revelation to the Gentiles. And, he says, for glory to your people Israel. Two words that are really important there, light and revelation. Meaning that there are people who are in darkness and the gospel shines the light of the truth into their life and that glorious news awakens their mind and heart to the reality of where they are and what they've done and shows them how they then can be right with their God. And the Bible says that's glorious news, it's the gospel. If you've received Christ, it's what happened the moment that you understood for the first time that you were a sinner. And suddenly, you, 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 like it clicked, the light bulb went on. And what happened in that moment is in the darkness of your heart, God shone the light of His gospel and it illumined, it, it, it showed you what you're like. Which means this morning, if, if you don't know Christ, if you've never received Him as your Savior, you've never made that decision, and maybe that even today, this message is a part of the process of God storming into the darkness of your mind and heart, and in spite of all of what you've done, and even your attempts to resist Him, He keeps knocking at the door of your heart, and shining the glorious light into your soul, to both show you what you are like, and to show you how you can be right with Him. And before you resist that another day or somehow kick against that, let me just tell you, it is an act of God's grace that He tells you what you are like. It is an act of love that He shows you how lost you are and offers to you the opportunity to be right with your God. And what Simeon sees here is a glorious gospel. It was this child that Simeon held in his arms who would live a sinless life who would declare the words of life, and then it was this child who would absorb the wrath of God so that Creator and His people could be brought back together again. Or as Paul says in Ephesians, to be able to take things that are separated and bring them back together again. Look at Ephesians 2.11, will you? Here's a great passage that demonstrates the way in which God shone His light into the darkened minds of people. Ephesians chapter 2, in this text, in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about the glorious way in which God has taken Jew and Gentile, now brought them near. Specifically, he's talking to Gentiles, and he says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by that which is the circum, called the uncircumcision rather, by that which is called circumcision, which is made by flesh, by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow, that's bad news. That's where you were. You were aliens, strangers, you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. And then gloriously, verse 13 says this, But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Then skip ahead to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen, this is what we celebrate on Christmas morning. That we were once aliens and strangers. We were separated. We were distant. We were darkened. And God, through this Christ child, brought us near, welcomed us, 
took his wrath and poured it out on his son so you could be given his righteousness and now be called his adopted child. So in the midst of all the traditions that you have on Christmas morning, be sure you don't forget this one. We've got some great family traditions at our house. Growing up, I had this tradition that I'd get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and play Monopoly with my sister because I couldn't sleep. And we'd wait till my parents would get up. And we'd wake our parents up like at 6 o'clock in the morning. And I never understood why they... How could you sleep in on Christmas morning? And now as an adult, I understand that completely, right? In fact, we have our own little um, Christmas traditions. Uh, the night before, we'll get together, um, just our little family and Sarah will make this great meal, the kind of meal that our kids, you know, are sitting on the table going, mmm, 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 you're the best mom in the world. And, of course, that just is really great, right? It's just a great environment there. And we have a two-year-old that, you know, now we're all seeing Christmas through her lens and we're getting the video cameras ready and all that stuff. So when she comes down, because her response is our joy and... In fact, it's been interesting this holiday season. Whenever like someone from the church has given us like a little thing of candy, I'll bring it home. She's like, "Oh, Dad, thank you." She thinks it's for her, you know. So the whole world revolves around her right now. And so we have these traditions. You know, we'll sit and grab a cup of coffee, watch our kids open our presents. And as I was studying this text, I was reminded that you know, in the midst of all those great things, there's one gleaming jewel of tradition that we can never neglect nor forget: that Christmas is essentially about the beauty of the gospel. So can I encourage you on Christmas morning before your feet hit the bed before your feet hit the bed before your feet hit the floor before you get up just take 15 seconds and say to Jesus thank you that today is the celebration of the beginning of my redemption because this gospel is beautiful it is beautiful and Simeon saw it and last, he also saw the cost of what it would mean to follow Christ. It's interesting here that Simeon doesn't domesticate the gospel. He doesn't just tell one side of the gospel. He shows us both. And what you'll find here is that godly people are satisfied not only with grace, but they're satisfied with costly grace. And here's why. Because their hearts have been so eclipsed by the beauty of what God has done in them, that giving anything, including their lives, to Christ just makes sense. Simeon says to Mary and Joseph these words, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. The first thing, and don't miss this, it says the child is appointed. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that this child coming is a part of the sovereign plan of God. You can look at other passages that talk about Jesus being slain before the foundation of the world. Meaning that even though Pilate and Herod were all engaged in actively in the crucifixion of Christ, that all of that was a part of God's sovereign plan for the redemption of mankind. That there isn't anything about the cross that should in any way tell you God doesn't understand, He didn't plan that, or He wasn't in control. God was completely in control even in the death of His own Son. And why is that important? That's important because when difficulties come or hardships come and you're on what I call the dark side of the will of God, meaning like an orbit around a moon, you're on the back side and, and the eclipsing 
reality of your life is you don't see how it's going to turn out and you're on the dark side it's confusing you're wondering what's going on and some of you may be in that position today you may be without a job you're still single and you didn't want to be you wish you had a child on the on the way but you don't you may have a loved one or a spouse that's not been faithful and you're on the dark side you're wondering what's going to happen to me here's the word to cling to appointed Meaning, when you don't understand, the one thing you can always know is that God is an absolute, in, absolutely in control. But none of it takes God by surprise. And what Simeon said is this child is appointed. He's the chosen one. This is all a part of God's sovereign plan. And even the most vile, difficult, horrendous event in all of human history, even the crucifixion of Christ, was still a part of God's gracious plan. So I can't explain to you how the difficulties in your life presently or in the past fit into God's plan. All I know is they do. And one day He'll explain it to us. And until then, we just have to trust. By the way, that's what we're going to talk about for seven weeks in January with our whole series of Job. The most refreshing and satisfying answer is not to the why question, but it's to the who question. This child is appointed, next he says, for the fall and rising of many. Meaning that Jesus would be a stone over which some people would fall and perish, and others would be humbled and would be risen up by God's power. So there's two kinds of people today. Because of who Jesus is, either you will stumble over him and the result will be you will perish, because you'll, for the rest of your life, say, oh, Jesus isn't the Son of God Maybe he did die on a cross, but that doesn't mean anything for me today. And one day you'll stand before him and you'll know it's not right. And the reality is you will have fallen. And then there's other people who have been risen up by Christ because they've humbled themselves. They've realized they're a sinner. They've turned from their sins. And Jesus has infused them with the Spirit of the living God, placed the new heart within them, and risen, raised them up to walk in newness of life. He says he will be... Appointed for the fall rising of many, a sign that will be opposed. This is clear. All men will not accept Christ. In fact, he will be rejected. And Jesus even warned his disciples, Beware when all men speak well of you. Could I just tell you? The church was not supposed to be popular in the world. So when the church isn't popular or castigated by the world in media or print or other forms, we ought not to go, oh, what's going on? <laughs> on the contrary, when the world says, boy, that church is really great and we guys are really wonderful, that's when we ought to go, whoa, what's going on? Because Christ, by definition, was opposed. He told us, don't be surprised when men persecute you. Expect persecution, he said, because they persecuted me. And then he says this to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul. He's telling her that she will suffer greatly at the suffering of her son. Remember the moment when she's at the foot of the cross and Jesus says to John, Behold your mother, mother, behold your son. Here's this, this personal and devastating moment as she's beholding the suffering of her own flesh and blood. And then the final thing, which to me is a stunning statement, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. One of two things that this could mean. Either one, it means that Jesus will reveal the hearts of mankind, and certainly he will do that. Or also, it means that how you respond to Christ reveals your heart. Meaning, if you haven't understood that you're a sinner, and that you're under God's judgment, then you will reject Christ. And the thoughts of your heart will be revealed by that rejection. Because here's what you're saying when you reject Christ. 
you in effect say, no, that's okay, I'm going to be my own God. Everything's going to revolve around me. And the first step in coming to faith in Christ is realizing that, that you need to realize you've made a mess of your life. And you're under the judgment of God. And even if things are going a little bit well for you, you've got to know that that aching hole in your heart is something that God put there by design to tell you that you can't do life on your own. The thoughts of hearts will be revealed by Christ means that how you respond to Jesus is an indication of what's happening within your soul. So you put all this together and what you have is a costly gospel. It's appointed. It's responsible for the fall and rising of many. It's opposed. It pierces through the hearts. And it also reveals the hearts of many. So you got to understand this gospel is glorious and attractive. But hear me, it is not safe. It's not safe. Simon doesn't take the gospel and somehow make it less than what, he, what, it, what, he, what it is. Rather, Simeon is a godly man who is satisfied with the gospel, even though it is beautiful and it is costly. So let me put this right for us in our lives. First, let me ask you this. Number one, is godliness a treasure for you? Do you treasure godliness? Is your relationship with, with God something that you treasure and can eclipse everything else in life? Or is it just kind of an add-on? Is godliness something that you see as a real valuable thing in your life, or is it something that just kind of comes and goes? Maybe 2009 needs to be the year where you get serious about spiritual lethargy and say, apathy no more. Secondly, do you see the beauty of what the gospel is all about? I want to encourage you during this holiday season to find some time and say, Lord, thank you for the beauty of what the gospel is. Third, do you follow Christ even when it's costly? For some of you, 2009 is going to prove to be a hard year with some unique challenges. And and my, my encouragement to you and my exhortation would be that the gospel is worth suffering for and following even when it doesn't always make sense. And that leads me to the next one. Can you be godly during seasons when God makes you wait? I don't like to wait. I think waiting is a universal human pain in the neck. And as things get faster, it just makes waiting harder. When my DSL slows down and I don't immediately give up, it's, it, it, it messes me up. I, I want instant answers. That doesn't work with God. And finally, have you turned to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Some of you need to know that the reason you're here in God's plan for your life is because you need to hear a simple, true message about your soul, and that is... The good news is that God knows that you're a sinner just like you know that you are, but he's made a way for you to be right with him by receiving Christ. And today could be the day when your life changes dramatically from being God's enemy to being his friend. So Simeon, what did he see? He saw the Messiah, this this all-surpassing, beautiful child that he was holding that communicated the glorious reality of what was coming to Israel. And because Simeon saw it, His heart was satisfied with this beautiful and costly gospel. And I want to suggest to you this morning, College Park Church, that anyone who understands the beauty of what God has done for them in the gospel is satisfied with the reality of God's unbelievable work. And yet there are times in our life when we need to to be reminded, yeah, that's right, the most important thing in all the world 
is the reality of what Jesus did for me in the good news of the gospel. I want you to see what Simeon saw and be satisfied with the glorious gospel that changes our lives and that he was able to hold in his hands. Lord Jesus, we ask you this morning to take the hearts of men and women that you know and open them to the reality of their need for Christ. Lord, you know the condition of every man and woman here today. No one hides from you at all. And I pray that, Lord, even now, you would shine the light of your word into the darkness of a human heart and help them to see both who they are and also the reality of who you are. Father, I pray that over the next number of days as we celebrate with family and friends that we will not neglect the beauty of the gospel that we've received and we could just spend a few moments thanking you that my heart is clean. I'm righteous. Not because of me, but because of you, Lord Jesus. Lord, forgive us for spiritual apathy. Forgive us for ways in which we grieve your heart and quench your spirit and fill us, we pray, afresh and anew with what it means to treasure you above all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name.